0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet. Today is April 8th, 2021. This is episode 29 of season 3. Episode 94 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Today we're going to talk about The Twilight of the American Enlightenment, the 1950s and the Crisis of Liberal Belief by George M. Marsden. I just finished this 6-hour and 24-minute audiobook yesterday on my drive home from work. The publisher's summary on Audible reads as follows, In the aftermath of World War II, the United States stood at a precipice. The forces of modernity unleashed by the war had led to astonishing advances in daily life, but technology and mass culture also threatened to erode the country's traditional moral character. As award-winning historian George M. Marsden explains in The Twilight of the American Enlightenment, post-war Americans looked to the country's secular liberal elites for guidance in this precarious time, but these intellectuals proved unable to articulate a coherent common cause by which America could chart its course their failure lost them the faith of their constituents paving the way for a christian revival that offered america a firm new moral vision one rooted in the protestant values of the founders a groundbreaking reappraisal of the country's spiritual reawakening the twilight of the american enlightenment shows how america found new purpose at the dawn of the cold war and i quote So George M. Marsden, according to the cover photo for this audiobook, is winner of the Bancroft Prize. I don't know what that prize is, but I'm sure it's very prestigious, and kudos to him. I actually really liked this book. I wasn't familiar with Marsden before. I didn't know who he was. He's probably very famous, and I'm uh, revealing my ignorance about such things that I didn't know him or hadn't read him before or hadn't heard of him. His name sounds vaguely familiar. I might have heard of him, but I wasn't paying close enough attention when somebody told me about him. If you get a chance and you're interested in the subject of American modern history and philosophy and culture and how we got to where we're at right now, where we're at this crossroads, are we going to go over the cliff and self-immolate or are we going to rise like a phoenix from the ashes to, as former President Donald Trump put it, the best is yet to come? Check this out if you have a chance. Even if you're not particularly interested, maybe you should be. and Maybe you listen to this or similar works. I've listened to a couple of books on this general topic here recently. It's just been a theme. I've been trying to explore and understand better and delve into. Marsden's work here reminds me of R.R. Reno's Return of the Strong Gods, which I also read here in recent weeks. It reminds me of Carl R. Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It is similar in scope and in subject to Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue. There's a lot of books that are covering overlapping themes and charting a uh, trajectory that, uh, between the lot of them, I feel like I'm understanding better and better with each passing book as I consider how it is that my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation helped to decide the sort of dilemmas and the sort of questions that now face us in my generation and well conceivably, presumably, Continue to face my children after me, my grandchildren after me. I think it behooves us to have a little bit of a longer view as to the events of today. Today, President Biden is supposed to announce gun control executive actions, things he's going to do unilaterally with his pen and his phone to try and stop the supposed alleged pandemic of gun violence in this country. A school shooting happens or a mass shooting at a grocery store in Boulder, Colorado, and Democrats predictably seize on it. It's almost like in Civil War days and Reconstruction days when they were concerned about black Americans owning firearms and learning how to read. They feel very threatened on the left when common citizens like you and me have the ability to defend our hearth and home. They don't like it. They can say, we're trying to get guns out of the hands of people that are dangerous, but who exactly are those people as they see it? Well, those people are you and me, and we are idiots. We're fools. We're unstable. We're mentally ill if we're conservatives. We could pop at any time. And to keep us from being a danger to ourselves or others, they want to straightjacket us legally, legislatively, executively. They want to straightjacket us and to muzzle us. If we object and if we point out that what they're saying doesn't make sense, they tell us to follow the science and to trust the experts. And wouldn't you know it, that's a lot of what George Marsden gets into In his book the twilight of the american enlightenment he points out that dr spock for instance when he wrote his groundbreaking or maybe foundation eroding works on parenting and psychology he was writing to a suddenly receptive audience it wasn't that spock dr spock was creating this interest in not disciplining your children and in supposedly trusting yourself, trusting your gut, trusting your your children and their better angels and their good nature, supposedly. It wasn't that he just created this climate, whole cloth. There was already a desire in the heart of man to hear the kinds of things that he was saying. There were itching ears that wanted to be scratched by Dr. Spock and others, and he just happened to be the guy that was there to scratch them. He could have written that book at another time in American history, and it would have been laughed out of print. Nobody would have bought it, or the people who did buy it would have ridiculed him, and rightly so, for a whole lot of nonsense that he was peddling. As it was, when he wrote what he wrote, it came at an intersection in American history when the automobile had created greater and greater mobility for the American man and woman. With this greater mobility came also a loosening of constraints because people wanted to be less inhibited morally and emotionally and psychologically, just like they now felt less inhibited physically. They, le- they were not as constrained to a particular geographical area, trains had helped before that, to open things up. But trains are a little bit of a different vehicle, if you don't know. Trains, you have to be a little bit more overt when you're planning a trip on. You are not probably, unless you're very wealthy, going to own your own private train. You're going to buy a ticket, and you're going to be riding with other people. And those other people, if they're coming from the same place that you come from, might know you. Or they may know people that you know. And so there's a whole lot less anonymity than comparatively, when you get in your car or truck and drive 15 minutes, half an hour, an hour away, hours away. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And the whole reason that we say things like that is because people sometimes like to go to places where they don't think their sins will find them out. And automobiles allowed for a relaxation of the concern in earlier times for, I would say, all of human history that we know of, that we have recorded, up to that point, that if you did something in your local area, it was going to stick with you for the rest of your life. You'd better watch what you say around people in a small community full of gossips, because whatever you're going to say to those people is going to be heard around all the water coolers, at all the places of business, in all of the beauty salons in town. And probably for quite some time, that's going to follow you. It's going to get changed and repeated and slightly modified and taken out of context and interpreted. And then the interpretation will be remembered as the original thing that you said, even though it wasn't. And that will be who you are in the eyes of the community for the rest of your life, unless you uproot, unless you decide to move yourself to a new community. That takes a lot of work and sometimes people have reasons for moving to a new place that are other than having tarnished their reputation. But sometimes people tarnish their reputation in a certain area and so they have to pack up and start over somewhere else. Sometimes they burn bridges and they've got to go somewhere to find new bridges and maybe they won't burn them the next time around. But when automobiles came on the scene, all of a sudden a young man, could stop and pick up a young woman and take her to a movie. When movies came out, that became a opportunity for the courting dynamic to change drastically. All of a sudden, you didn't necessarily need to worry so much about going in and asking the girl's father if you could court her, if you could have a chaperone and maybe walk around the gardens a bit and talk about your plans for how many children the two of you might like to have if you settled down, and what your career prospects were, what your theology was, what your politics were. All of a sudden, you didn't have to persuade the father so much. You just had to park out front of the house long enough for her to jump in and for the two of you to go off where nobody could see you on the lookout point. And then maybe there's some kissing, and maybe you do a little bit more than kissing because you have mobility and you don't have so much accountability as you have mobility. (laughs) The Twilight of the American Enlightenment points out that as this mobility was changing the culture, changing the dynamic, the psychology, in the macro, and in the macro, there was a desire, an appetite in people's hearts and minds for experts who would come and tell them the things that made them feel licensed to do what they wanted to do anyways. To psychologize the loosening of moral constraint and the relaxation of this whole idea that God made us and our purpose is derived from him, and our accountability ultimately goes back to him. If you can listen to an expert who tells you you don't need to worry so much about all of that because this life is all there is, because we're just mammals, you and me, babe, then isn't that convenient? So Dr. Spock writes, and the ideas of Freud and the ways of marketing and campaigning that were pioneered by Freud's double nephew, Edward Bernays, these met with a receptive audience. It's not so dissimilar to what happened when Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species was published. That idea that Darwin was communicating about evolution by natural selection, the fittest uh, being able to survive, not necessarily the strongest or the swiftest, but those members of a species which were most fit, which had favorable adaptations and mutations and habits, surviving, reproducing, filling up the gene pool of successive generations, changing the species, maybe diversifying the species if they were stranded on some island in the Galapagos versus on the mainland of South America versus mainland of Europe. Those species turning into, at a certain point, according to the theory, totally different species. That idea that Darwin articulated was not a new idea. There were others, like his grandfather, Erasmus, for instance, who had communicated that idea before. But similar to the Dr. Spock business, written in other times, such ideas did not get the kind of traction they did when Charles Darwin wrote his book. There was another intersection in Western civilization, in human affairs and the development of culture, which happened around the time that Darwin wrote his book and published it. That was the rise of industrialized wealth. New money had factories, and they didn't have to have all of these connections to the aristocracy, the nobility, the monarchy, the clergy. They didn't have to have huge tracts of land. They could... Acquire quite a fortune by just having enough land to build a factory, just having enough good connections with people who knew how to make machines to get the machines to set them up, enough good connections with people who had the raw materials to get the raw materials in, to make the finished goods, to market the finished goods. And because these industrialists had new money, they, at a certain point, grew tired of being looked down on, talked down to by people who maybe didn't have quite so much money as they had land now, who didn't have quite so much money as they still had political power because this is the way it's been for hundreds of years. The aristocracy is hereditary and it's based on who found favor with the last line of kings or the current line of kings or the current monarch who has favor with the church and hasn't been excommunicated and their properties forfeit and given to other more faithful subjects, more faithful members. The new money wanted an idea to seize on and to amplify, which would give them an excuse for a power grab. Well, then comes Charles Darwin's idea that the fit survive, and displace the less fit. They reproduce and multiply. Favorable adaptations might include industrialization, might include manufacturing in factories and finished goods, commanding a premium. The fit of the species might just be these guys that don't have quite so much of a devotion to the old way of doing things. So then Darwin's book comes on the scene, and people buy it up, and they tell all their friends to read it, and they promote it because it helps to create a condition psychologically which eases the defenses, which erodes the opposition in the established old guard. So also, in the 1950s, you didn't have, out of nowhere, this desire to listen to the experts, what you had was a desire to listen to the experts instead of listening to God. Instead of us believing that God has given us his divine inspired word quite so much, we wanted to hear what science had to say about this, what secular scientists had to say, particularly if they were going to tell us all about male and female sexuality and how good and healthy it was and normal It was for animals of most every species to act on their sexual urges in an unconstrained way. As the song goes, you and me, babe, ain't nothing but mammals, let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. That was the gist of it put in far less crude terms as far back as the the 1930s, the 1940s, and then you get to the 1950s, and there is a reaction to some extent after the winning of World War II, after being confronted with the evils of Nazism and Japanese imperialism. In the thick of the Cold War with a godless Soviet Union, there was an interest in trying to shore up a culture which was already then beginning to erode at its foundations morally. We hadn't eroded quite so much as our competitors. We still had a lot of civic virtue. People like President Eisenhower and President Truman tried to institute days of prayer and to put in God we trust on our money so that we would be reminded of the contrast between us and the communist Soviet Union. We believe in God and they don't. Well, that's fine. If it's true, it would be a very good thing if it were true. Are we willing to do more to make it true than putting it on our currency? Are we willing to change the way that we think, the way that we live? The conformity of the 1950s was, in part, an outgrowth of this reliance on standardization that held over from World War II, mass-producing goods, general issue goods that could be made more cheaply if you could make everybody's the same translated into a way of thinking about the houses that we live in, the communities that we live in, the kinds of music that we listen to, the rise of television allowed for a standardization of culture. Everything needed to be standardized, but that led to a kind of rigid external conformity that was not so good that was not so healthy? Was that conservatism, or was that progressivism? To say we're going to standardize culture, we're going to make everything squeaky clean, leave it to bieber esque was that so healthy and so human? Or was that mechanical? Was that an industrialized way of treating people? Was that really, shall we say, a precursor to the time that we live in now, I think the pendulum has swung back and forth, back and forth, and we're now in a kind of 1950s conformity. McCarthyism looks a lot like cancel culture. It looks a lot like calling everybody we don't like Nazis. You don't have to have a good argument if you can just say that this person is such and such a phobic, such and such a bigot. You can make them disappear make them no longer be a competitor for political power, for influence in the culture, influence in your church even. The twilight of the American Enlightenment deals with how we got the 1950s and then what happened in the wake of the 1950s, the 1960s, with the counterculture, with hippies that threw off suburban lifestyle to go live in communes or To be homeless or to be adrift or to go to woodstock to do drugs to not just loosen their sexual morality but to throw it off entirely to the greatest extent possible to make music which celebrated their supposed liberation to campaign against the vietnam war why are we fighting these communists we're not any better than the communists in fact our movie stars, our recording artists, some of our politicians, our academics might just like the communists better because they want this godless lifestyle, this godless unaccountability so badly, they're not content with half measures. And then you get to today and we have a president who says through his spokespeople that he goes to church regularly and that is proof that he is a Christian and that we should just take his word for it if he says that Jesus would want us to give up our second amendment rights our first amendment rights Jesus would want us to open the floodgates and to allow everybody in the world that might possibly vote democrat if they are nationalized naturalized made into citizens. We have to take his word for it. He doesn't even have to make an argument. Just like you don't have to make an argument when you call somebody a Nazi. If you're a Democrat who's for secularism, who's for humanism, who's for central planning, you don't have to make a compelling argument for why we should do things your way. You have the culture, you have a monoculture, Regardless of how many media outlets there are, they're all saying the same thing. The talking points are distributed, and people like Ben Rhodes in the Obama administration openly bragged to Time Magazine. Or was it the New York Times? Or was it CNN? Or are they all the same? They created echo chambers of conforming narrative narrative. That's the beauty of having lots of voices saying almost the exact same thing. You don't want it to be 100% the same thing because that gets weird and people start to know what's up and they start to suspect that they're being taken for a ride. That loosening of constraints on the individual level that leads the young man to park out front of the young girl's house just long enough for her to jump in while her parents are not looking race off to the lookout point that license which says there's nothing worrying about that we don't need to mind that business it's not our business even if you're the parents parents what are parents this is a brave new world aldrews huxley we don't believe in mother and father those are bad words you wash your mouth out with soap after you say mother and father there's only the community There's only the collective good. It's gross. Makes me nauseous to think that all of the godlessness gets dressed up in pious sounding language. But in the present, in this day, when I hear trust the experts and follow the science, when you hear that kind of talk, you need to realize that didn't come from nowhere. That didn't just happen. You just noticed it because the stakes are obviously high right now. This is for all the marbles. The 2020 election was, and even with it having been stolen by fraud because the Democrats clearly believe they have a right to do whatever it takes to quote-unquote win elections, We right now, when we're faced with executive actions and legislation, funny business, propaganda, brainwashing from our media, we have a choice to trust the experts, whoever they are, to follow the science, whatever that is. This is not science and this is not experts. This is individuals who believe hubristically that they should run your life, that they know better than you what is good for you. But before they embarked on this arrogant crusade to save you from yourself, to save your money from you, to save your political power from you, to save your critical thinking skills from you, to save your religious doctrine and practice from you, to raise your children for you because we have to save your children from your backwards superstitious ideas. Before they embarked on that, they first divorced their hearts and their minds from the truth of God's word. They resent the idea of being accountable to God, and that's why they play God, is nature abhors a vacuum. Horror vacui, as the Latin phrase goes. Nature abhors a vacuum. So it's not enough to take God out of the equation. You have to put something else in In, When the children of Israel are delivered out of Egypt in the book of Exodus, they prevail on Aaron, Moses' brother, as Moses and Joshua go up to the mountain to receive the commandments from the Lord. He writes them with his own finger on tablets of stone. They prevail on Aaron in Moses and Joshua's absence, and they say, he should make them a god to worship, to deliver them, to bring them back to Egypt or wherever it is that they're going. He collects all of the jewelry, all of the rings and the necklaces, the bracelets and the anklets, all of that, melts it all down, and he makes a golden calf out of it. And the children of Israel say, this is our god. Why do they do that? It's like Indiana Jones, when Indiana Jones, he's taking the little golden idol from the temple in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's in this Amazon rainforest. He's being chased at one point, not long after, by these mostly naked savages, chased through the jungle. But before that, he goes down into this Mayan or Aztec crypt. He pulls this golden idol off of its pedestal, And he replaces it with what he's hoping is an equal weight bag of sand. Because it's booby trapped. There's a pressure switch. If you remove the golden idol without putting something in its place, the booby trap will start firing sharp things at you. Designed to kill you. Because you're not supposed to be taking that idol off the pedestal putting it in a museum where it belongs. That's kind of like what we do when we eject God from our equation. Follow the science I maintain requires that we include an uncaused cause in our equation, but we don't like that. Our foolish hearts are darkened and we reject the plain truth about God, which has been... Clear since the beginning God has written it on our hearts and yet we sear our hearts we sear our consciences because we don't want to go there we don't want to think that we don't want to believe that we don't want to live like that our foolish hearts are darkened because we hate God and we love death and so we make other gods for ourselves we elect golden calves and false prophets to lead us back to bondage because that is familiar. And going and inheriting a promised land is scary. When 12 spies are sent into the land of Canaan, 10 come back saying, we are as grasshoppers in their eyes, speaking of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. Yes, it's a good land. Yes, there's milk and honey. There are very good vegetables and fruits that grow there, but it's taken. Never mind that God delivered us out of Egypt and God has promised us this land. Never mind about that. There are giants. And we are not so hot, not so keen on serving God in this way and trusting in Him. We trust ourselves, we trust the experts. We trust the 10 spies who tell us we should just go back to Egypt. We should elect new leaders for ourselves and we should stone Joshua and Caleb for having the temerity to tell us our God is for us, who can be against us. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Check out George M. Marsden's The Twilight of the American Enlightenment, The 1950s and the Crisis of Liberal Belief. I listened to it in three and a quarter hours or thereabouts on double speed. It's a good read. Won't take you that long. It's worth your time. But that's all I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you heard today, visit the homepage for On The Rocks blog at onthe.rocks. Also, check out On The Rock's blog podcast with Micah Hirschberger weekly on Anchor FM. If you haven't yet done so, hit subscribe to this podcast also, and you can reach Garrett Ashley Mullet with any comments, questions, or complaints at GarrettMullet at gmail.com.